choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's go to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and I'm going to read this for us. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's stop there. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of His Word today. In this series entitled The Church, we're really going to look at three main topics throughout the time together. And the first topic we're going to begin into today is leadership. We're going to spend several weeks on leadership We're going to talk about leadership in the church because that's where Titus begins, or Paul begins in writing to Titus, rather. And then we're going to talk about, secondly, discipleship. Discipleship. It's not just a program in the church. It is the heartbeat of what the church is all about. And so I'm going to press on your preconceived notions and ideas about what discipleship is all about. And then we're going to reimagine what God wants us to be about as a church in making disciples. And the third topic that we're going to consider is mission. Mission for the church. But today we begin with leadership. Paul tells Titus that he left him in Crete for a specific work in the church. You see, the church was formed. People had believed when the gospel was preached and the apostolic teaching was helping to shape the people. Now, when Paul talks about the apostolic teaching, it's functionally what we understand as the Bible today. Because there was no New Testament in the days of the New Testament. It was developing. But their scriptures were predominantly what we would consider the Old Testament. And then in addition to the Old Testament, the apostolic teaching or the doctrine as they explained how all of the Old Testament pointed to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and what that looks like for us today, that was the apostolic teaching and doctrine. And so that's what was forming the church when people became Christians and this congregation, if you will, was forming around this teaching. 
And so as we move into verse 5 of Titus 1, I want you to see this, that we're going to begin talking about leadership in the church. Leadership in the church is not some separate entity of the church, but rather it's a critical part of the church. Because leadership without fellowship is simply hallucination. If there's no one following you, you're not a leader. Right? Yes. But covenant membership in the church that articulates the doctrines that the apostles taught, that that sets forth the parameters of, of faith and belief for a body of people, covenant membership always precedes biblical leadership. I need you to understand that. There's several things I need you to understand today, and that's why I'm sitting down. I almost fastened a seatbelt to this so I wouldn't be tempted to stand up, kick the stool back, and really begin to let you have it. Which is my normal practice if you're new to LifePoint. Also, I also tell jokes interspersed throughout my sermon that aren't funny. Just in case you're new. Covenant membership always precedes biblical leadership in the church. Because the leaders that God ordains for the church are members before they're leaders. That's important. And you're going to understand that, hopefully, as we study. 1 Timothy also has a list because as Paul is writing to Titus in the book of Titus, he also writes an accompanying letter to Timothy, which we have recorded as First and Second Timothy. And in First Timothy 3, there is an accompanying list of qualifications for biblical leadership. I'm going to stick as tightly as I can to the book of Titus since that is the book in which we are studying. But I just want you to know these are not two competing lists that we should choose from. Rather, in the formation of the church, what we do is we merge these two lists to have a comprehensive outlook. Now, neither list is incomplete in and of itself. They're basically the same lists. And so what we're going to do is uh, uh, consider Titus's list in our study together. Now, for me, as I begin to talk about leadership, there's not an elder at our church that doesn't feel the temperature is maybe three degrees too warm in the room and the weight of life is pressing upon him just a little more. Because there's never a time that those who are charged with the responsibility for leadership in the church feel a sense of relief off of that leadership. And I say that myself. One of the principal reasons I'm sitting down today is because the most difficult task of my job is to teach you how to follow not only me, but all of our elders. And I want to do it in such a way that I can explain it to be helpful for you because we are accountable to God and part of that accountability means that we are accountable to you. And what I'm teaching you today isn't just for eight men who've been installed as elders of this church. It's for every person who considers themselves a covenant member of this church. Because we will not shy away from calling you to follow us. And that means you must trust us. And if you are to trust us, you must not just know that we're good guys. But you must know that God has called us and determined that for the life of the church. Today's a weighty day. 
simply because not only the topic with which I'm teaching, but in our world at large, it's a weighty day. Experts project or expect that somewhere in the 400 range will be the number of pastors, of church leaders, and staff members that submit their resignation to churches this morning because of the Ashley Madison website debacle. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Ashley Madison is a website in our world today that simply holds the tagline, life is short, have an affair. And people create secret profiles so that they can have affairs and not be found out. Thinking that it might work was their first act of deception. Thinking that they were hidden in it was their biggest lie. Because that website got hacked not too long ago. And millions of people's information was taken and released. And with that release, countless pastors, church leaders, and staff members' names were made public. Some whose churches found out before they knew. And today, many of them, many churches who've been following leaders in the church will find out for the first time, sitting in a room not unlike this one here, next to people, expecting to hear the word of God, and rather they'll hear a resignation letter read to them because their sins found them out. Leadership is no small issue in the church, friends. None whatsoever. Let me put you at rest. To my knowledge, there won't be any resignation letters read here, okay? As I'm looking at you, you're going, oh, no. What is he about to do? (laughs) There are no resignation letters read here. Um, I would be all bruised up, I'm pretty sure, and beat up. (laughs) If so, you know, (laughs) woo. Yeah, I'm not sure I would even be talking or walking or anything like that. I surely don't want to make light of that, but I do want to, in some way, put your mind at ease about what's coming. What if instead of life is short, have an affair, Christians rather embrace the conviction that life is eternal? Let's make every second matter. What if we... What if we looked at life differently? You know, Scripture tells us in the book of Acts that the apostles, when they began to preach the gospel in the first century, they, the Scripture records, turn the world upside down. We live in an upside down world that is flipped on its head and is desperately longing to be turned upside down. The church is in in an age of seismic shift, just as the whole world is. And if we are to faithfully engage God's mission in the world, we must hold to a biblical standard of leadership. Leadership as the first order of priority in the book of Titus and in 1 Timothy is not 
happenstance, friends. It's by God's divine order. And just as I have stated with the beginning of this series, we live in an era of history when we need godliness. We we are laboring in this study to live out godliness in an age of godlessness. And that's not just for your leaders. That's for every person who claims the name of Christ. Godliness is not just some pie-in-the-sky ethereal vision that some holier-than-thou people should attain towards, but it is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ when he is by faith believed for salvation. And so what I'm laboring for today and throughout this series is for godliness throughout all of the ranks of Life Point Church, throughout every nook and corner and, and cranny of this place, throughout the life of every person. Godliness is our aim in all things, to be lived in an age where godlessness reigns. So when Paul instructs how the church is to select leaders, he he doesn't leave us without clear instruction. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. God calls leaders to the church that are qualified by character and competent for the work. God calls leaders to the church that are qualified by character and competent for the work. I'm going to share four guiding principles with you for the church that we might understand how God calls elders to lead in the church. Now, again, your temptation may be today to simply go, well, this is a great message for anyone that wants to consider eldership, but I just want to shatter that thought in your mind. If it's any inkling has any inkling of existence in you that's absolutely incorrect every person in the church should understand the role of eldership because it is their responsibility to assess and to affirm what God is doing in the congregation in order to say yes to affirm them and ultimately to follow them as leaders in the church. So four principles. I'm going to give you a little warning. We're not going to finish the sermon today. That's going to drive some of you nuts because there's four numbers on the page. And if we don't have something to write by every number, you can't take that note sheet home with you. Right? I'm going to get under your skin a little bit today. I'm only going to preach half a sermon. But it's going to take the whole time. (laughs) But you're laughing. And remember what I said last week. That cuts five minutes off the back end of every sermon. The first principle is this. Appointing elders is first priority of order in the church. Appointing elders is first priority of order in the church. Now let me say this. I want to qualify this statement for you. Because I've already said it. That covenant membership always precedes biblical leadership. It's first priority or first order of priority for the church but that's because the church or covenant membership has already been established you see elders are members before they're leaders and that's very important Paul says to Titus I'm leaving you in Crete so that you might 
put into order what remains. In other words, you might establish biblical church leadership. And appointing elders for the church sets God's love on his people that he might distinguish Christians in the world. Friends, this is why the church is in such shambles today. That's why today is such a grievous moment. Even though you may not know the name of a church leader or a church member who has been found out because of this debacle of a website hack, it is still a grievous day for us because the reputation of the gospel in the world is going to be blighted today by so many. They're going to be validated in their rejection of God Because they say, see, those people are no different than me. I don't need God. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. That you've compared yourself to other Christians and said, I don't need God because I'm no different than them. And I hope today helps you understand that that's not the right way to measure need for God. You see, appointing elders for the church sets God's love on his people in order to distinguish Christians in the world. When Matthew speaks of Jesus, here's what he writes in chapter 9, verse 36. He says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. What crowds? It was the crowds of people, the masses that were swarming around him by the thousands, some some estimate even tens of thousands, just to hear his teaching. And it says this, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Those two words together basically resemble a chaos and lack of direction for all of life. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion on the masses because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Christians are distinct in the world as God's sheep because they have a shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the chief shepherd. Jesus then in turn gives elders to lead the church in following him, the great shepherd. In chapter 20, in verse 28 of the book of Acts, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And here's what he says to them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God has ordained that his people will be shepherded in this world. And what a beautiful picture. It's a picture of the way God practically and functionally sets his love upon them. And what Paul does to Titus is he gives his full apostolic authority so that he can appoint elders in the church. And listen, friends, there is no higher authority among men than this apostolic authority because it comes only as a direct revelation from Jesus himself. So what Paul is doing is he says to Timothy, I'm transferring the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that he gave to me when he appeared to me on the road to Damascus and he made me an apostle. That's capital A. 
Once those first 12 apostles died and moved from the face of the earth, there have never been apostles with a capital A again. Now, I'm talking to you a little bit about theology and ecclesiology, but I need you to understand that I'm not going to compare elders in the church today to apostles in biblical times. That is inaccurate, and anyone who does that is a false teacher. Sometimes... Leaders in the church want to take on that kind of authority for themselves. And they may use the title of apostle, but if they ever relate it directly to be identical to the apostles in the New Testament, get up and leave immediately. That's not what I'm doing today. But what Paul is saying is I'm giving you the authority that Jesus has given to me to appoint elders in every town on the Isle of Crete. This is the highest authority. You see, appointing elders, friends, is not optional for the church. It's not a good recommendation, or it's not just something that the church should give serious thought to consider. There is no such biblical concept as a church without appointed elders or pastors. And people without a shepherd in the world or something altogether other than distinctively Christian. Why do I say that? I say that for this reason, because we live in a day and time of individualized Christianity, and many simply ask this question, do I need a plurality of pastors or elders to care for my soul? That question was answered for me just this week in a thread on Facebook where two were debating uh, this very issue of the need for pastors, and one said to the others, it was an indirect debate uh, uh, that, that was just talking about church in general, but one of the comments on that thread says this, I don't need a pastor to tell me what God says. God speaks to me directly. And let me tell you the problem with that statement, is the problem with that statement is that that person making it has already denied what God has already said to them. So maybe you do need somebody to help you see what you've already dismissed and denied. I'm not the Holy Spirit, nor is our table of elders the Holy Spirit for you. We don't take God's place. We operate under His authority so many more just simply presume no is an adequate answer to the need for being pastored in their life today you see according to the bible god says yes every christian and the whole congregation must hold this understanding that when the church forms leaders are essential the first priority for the church and that's our first principle that we look at today God gives elders to the church as under shepherds of Jesus to care for his church and so appointing elders serves as the first priority of ordering the church and it must remain of first importance for the church at all times at all times that's the first guiding principle the second guiding principle I want us to look at today is this we see it in verse 6 here. That qualification for eldership begins with personal, godly character. Qualification for eldership begins with personal, godly character. 
I'm often amazed by how quickly churches seem ready to grant leadership to any person simply because they like them. As I work with church planters, new churches especially, that feel that pressure to get some kind of leadership in place, their defining qualification just seems to be, he's a good guy. And I tell you, that's a wholly insufficient qualification for eldership. Many good guys crumble under the weight of the demand of leadership. Church leadership is not about deciding who you like. Biblical leadership determines that one is qualified by testing and approval. So when situations and issues get confusing, when they get difficult, and uh, quite frankly, when they get emotionally charged, trust holds unity, not in a person. Hear me. Trust among the congregation holds unity with the congregation in the gospel to move forward. You see, elders don't hold your trust. Elders are simply those whom God has given to represent the gospel. And it's in the gospel that our trust rests in Christ and in Christ alone. Trust in church leaders demands a good soil of character in order to grow deep roots of trust and to hold it firmly. To hold it firmly. Character is essential because it reveals the true man. Proverbs 27, 19 says this, As water, or excuse me, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. You see, the church must know the heart of the men that God gives to lead them. And so what Paul is doing here is Paul is saying this is the kind of heart that a man must have in order to be qualified to lead the church. He doesn't just talk about skills and abilities, but rather he talks about the character of a man's personal life and qualities that invite to hold strong trust of people. And here's what he begins with. He begins with the term in verse 6, above reproach. He says the first overarching qualification is that a man must be above reproach. This is the first character quality. It's just simply an overarching or umbrella term that means blameless or not worthy of charge of wrongdoing. It's a general term and it qualifies all of the other qualifications and characteristics you see God is not looking for perfect men but he is looking for marked men men whose lives are decisively marked by qualities of godliness and here are those qualities for his personal life first of all he must be the husband of one wife now the husband of one wife means it's a man who holds marital and sexual fidelity. Hence, again, we're reminded why today will be such a somber day for the church across the world. Because so many who've stood up and presented themselves as a one-woman man will be found out publicly as something other. Literally, this term is... Stated in the original language, one woman 
man. It's the literal rendering. And it says this, it doesn't, uh, a man doesn't have to be married, he can be single, because single versus married is not the issue that's directly addressed here. The issue addressed is one of sexual purity. That's the presiding principle of one woman, man. Whatever his status in life, he is a man who is sexually pure. And Purity is the conviction that a man holds, or more accurately, we should say, that holds a man to honor and to respect women in a godly manner. This means that he doesn't think of, nor does he treat women in any manner that belittles them or objectifies them, whatever the relationship that he may have with them. Sexual purity is the first of the personal godly characters. Why? Because our identity is so determined in God's eyes as He created us by our sexuality that sin of the sexual nature affects us and is at such a deep level within us that it defines us. The second one he gives are this. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, he's not required to have children, but if he does, they must honor his authority. It also does not require perfect children. Might I just say to you, as a PK myself or a preacher's kid, and as now a preacher who has two children, and as one who has known many preacher kids... And one who has been asked multiple times by preachers, how did you get out of a preacher's home not angry and bitter at the church? Let me just sit here for a minute if I could. Not because I want to bring any condemnation, but I want to cultivate a culture in our church that helps all of our children, especially our elders' children and families. Too often... They are burdened with the heavy demand that gets placed on them to be perfect. And what he is saying here holds more of a view towards older children who remain under a parent's provision, not younger children who fail to perform perfectly. If a man controls his children to the extent that they can't become who God has created them to be, that's also a disqualification for eldership because he's ruling in a way that is not honoring of God. But there is a way to exercise godly authority as a father that is able to control the child so that the child is not embittered or exasperated and stripped of hope but rather directed to the only one who is their hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that in those heaviest times of discipline, you go, Jesus is your only hope right now. Right? That wouldn't be a completely accurate application of that. Though it may have been used once or twice. They need to be believers. Faithful. They need to be absent of debauchery. This word is used in the New Testament of, of the vices that 
that encapsulate non-Christians in the non-Christian world. Sensuality, lust, drunkenness, and those kinds of things. And neither should they be insubordinate or rather undisciplined, uh, disobedient, or rebellious. And, and, and we're talking again more about uh, a view towards adult children that remain under the umbrella of their father. You see, what must not characterize the children of an elder is immorality and undisciplined rebelliousness. If the children are still at home and they're still under his authority, yes, they must respect his authority and live in accordance with it. It doesn't mean they're going to perform perfectly. And even for younger children, the way I would measure it is simply to say this. It's not whether the children acts out or not. It's whether the parents respond appropriately to that or not. And when the father speaks, do the children even let it matter to their ears? That's a good way for us to apply it. Paul is not asking any more of elders and his children than is expected of any Christian father and his children. You see, only one who exercises proper control over children may be an elder. And a potential elder's children who see his best and his worst. Because, friends, my kids have probably told you things about me. You've struggled to wonder if they're true or not. They've seen my worst. Hopefully, it hasn't outweighed my best. But I'm not going to entertain that conversation anymore. They've seen both. But they still must be obedient to the Father. You see, the family is the man's first church of which every father is called to faithfully pastor. Friends, that's a heavy, heavy burden. Not one that we take lightly. These are our children. We love them. And yet we see our best and our worst in them so often. And we want only the best for them. We want only the best for your children as well. Let's cultivate a congregation that is dead set on bringing the best out of all of our children. Because that's what God has called us to. Qualities of personal character identify the deepest level in a man's life. These characteristics don't infer a perfect man. This is what so often happens. And, and in church leadership, the church wants to so often put a man on a pedestal. And, and so quickly the man says, I'll sit there. Right? But that's not what Paul is teaching here. They don't infer a perfect man, but they form rather a baseline character of a man that is walking by faith and becoming more like Jesus. And by baseline character, I simply mean this. These are baseline for any Christian, not just a select few. Biblical qualifications for character, or for, excuse me, biblical qualifications for eldership begin with a godly personal character. That's what Paul tells him. And so, a natural question that emerges here is simply this. Why then must there be so much emphasis on character? And this is where I want us to turn and understand why a godly personal character is so important. I'm going to give you the third principle. Is that qualification for eldership 
measures the man's character in order to ensure his competency for the work. Qualification of character measures the man to ensure competency for the work. Verse 7 and 8, Paul goes on to write that, that as overseers, they are God's stewards. You see, elders are measured by character in order to measure competency for the work because that's where he moves the personal godly character in the direction of understanding. The work of an elder or pastor is not an individual's or group's work. It is God's Work. Jesus is the head of the church, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1. He is the chief shepherd. He leads his body actively ruling and reigning the local church. But what Jesus does is he gives elders to the church to carry out his leadership in the church as under shepherds for the church. That's what the first title of overseer says to us, overseer is one of three titles that's used in the New Testament, along with the title of pastor and elder. Those are the three titles, overseer, elder, and pastor. And of those three titles, overseer is the one that denotes the function of the role of elder. And so this role is further defined as God's Steward. So the way that elders function in the church is as God's steward. And what is critical about a steward? But that he does not own what he is responsible for, but someone else owns it. And we know who that someone else is. It's Jesus who purchased the church with his own blood. And so, and so elders oversee the church for God and will give an account for every aspect of the church. That's what Hebrews 13, 17 says of us. God gives oversight to men for the church that he purchased with his own blood. And so this makes it clear that the church matters deeply to God. And friends, we measure the qualification of a man's character in order to understand if he is competent for the work or not. Because competency for a work exposes character to determine how one will bear the weight of responsibility for the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. Let me try to bring an application to this. A man who fails to understand the importance of his character to determine his competency. In other words, a man who's an armchair elder. Oh, I could do that. I got that. I mean, if you just stop being dumb and doing it this way and start being wise and doing it this way, duh, right? Armchair elder. A man who fails to understand the importance of his character to determine his competency will also conclude that what God wants can be determined by what he wants. He's put himself at the center of qualification and that's where he will emanate all of his decisions from. That cannot be. Elders are God's stewards to oversee the church, not for their own accord, but for what God commands. And so elders must be qualified by character to ensure they are competent to lead God's work. Now the last thing I'm going to do for you today is I'm going to talk for just a minute about competency versus capability. Because you cannot confuse these two 
or you'll look only to natural abilities for elder qualification. And Paul doesn't say that at all. Competency is much more than just capability. Capability measures one's natural ability. It's important, not saying it's not important, but it's not primary in determining biblical church leadership. You see, competence is to natural ability what wisdom is to knowledge. They always go hand in hand, but they're not identical. Competence is to capability or to natural ability what wisdom is to knowledge. It applies personal ability in order to lead God's mission in God's manner. Let me give you two illustrations that I think will help solidify this. Capability is the steel pillar that is inserting at, inserted at strategic locations to support a building, right? So, like, when you see these massive skyscrapers, they have these massive steel pillars that run vertically in order to support the building. That's capability in a man. It's got to support the work. Competency is the bedrock that those steel pillars stand on. That's the relationship of capability and competency. Capability is like a man doing a push-up. He lifts his own weight. Competency is like a man pressing the weight of the church. That's the distinction between the two. And a man who draws strength from his own personhood, I'm a good person overall. A man who draws strength from his own persona. I'm charismatic. I know how to make people do what I want to do. Just get up and I talk a little bit. And they're like putty in the hands of a potter. Potter, yes. that's A man who draws strength from his performance. I can do this. A man who draws strength from his own philosophy. I know how to think about this. Will always default to his personal opinion over regard for congregational well-being. And will always struggle to submit to elder plurality. Because those two are going to push him back to submit to God's word as his ultimate authority. The first issue a church must address is not, is a man capable He's a good guy, or I like him, are inadequate qualifiers for eldership. Rather, the church must assess, is this man submitted to obey God's word in his life? That's the question right there, friends. It will cut to the chase to prick the heart. Eldership demands that a man be qualified as competent in character to lead Jesus' mission. Competency of character, you see, it affords spiritual power and authority to a man. And this power comes not because of who a man is, but because of who Jesus is in that man. And how he is shaping him in every way. And character that's been tested and qualified as competent grants God's power to do God's work in God's way and to accomplish God's Will. And so a man must rely upon a strength that is greater than his own to do God's work. And when that man draws strength, he will always draw from that which is shaping his character to make him strong. Biblical competence sources from personal character that is marked by godliness. 
biblical competence sources from personal character that is marked by godliness. Under-shepherds, elders, must be competent to lead the church. Friends, the church isn't looking for a few good men. The church only installs as elders men that are qualified by character as competent. I'm going to stop there today. I want you to remember this, though, that God calls leaders to the church that are qualified by character and competent for His work. Trusting elders that are qualified is not about believing more in a man or a group of men, but rather trusting in Jesus and His will and way. Would you pray with me as the worship team returns? I know a message like this isn't one that just stirs us to great movement or action. But friends, what's coming over the next weeks and months for us in the future? What is hinging us today in light of what's taking place with so many churches? Is that the congregation, the church, understands the priority and the qualification for biblical leadership? Let me ask you this, because this will greatly determine how you receive this message. What's shaping your character? What's forming you inside? Is it the idea that, you know, this is good for me. I enjoy these people. They're not too weird. There's a few, but not all. There's enough that satisfy me that I'm okay with dealing with the others. Is it that I feel like I ought to be and this is the one that I can most tolerate so I come here? This is the one that most looks like me, aligns with me. Or is it Jesus speaking to you through his word, through a people, and shaping you, calling out and identifying sin through conviction where it exists in you? and leading you to repentance so that the gospel can be applied, the truth can shine glorious in your life, and you don't look at yourself as perfect, but you look as Christ doing a redeeming, continual work in you. That's what Paul would say to Titus and to Timothy. And that's what he would say to the whole congregation. What's shaping your character? Because the thing that's shaping your character will be that which creates a foundation for you to make a decision for your leaders because you don't want a leader that's going to get into your character too deeply. That's just too uncomfortable. Is Jesus refining your heart day by day through the gospel? More than anything else. More than anyone Let me pray for us. You pray for us, friends. Father, today is a dark day in so many churches. We pray for them right now. That the Spirit would work with great power. And that, Lord, you would not only 
hold those churches because they are yours and you're working in them. But God, we know many of those servants, they're your children too. Maybe they've been deceived for a time and led astray. But God, we pray for the redeeming work of the gospel to shine gloriously in those places where the depths of darkness will be exposed today. God, we don't say that proudly. God, we know that any of us are susceptible to sin's temptation, to its lie and its deception. And so, God, we plead, keep us close to the foot of the cross where your body and your blood was shed for us. And God, it's not by our own performance that we've missed being found out. It's just simply by your grace and mercy that we've been covered by your blood and clothed with your righteousness. And that's a work that only Christ can do in us. God, we plead this morning not just for the shaping of elders or leaders in the church and their character, but God, we plead for the shaping of the character of every person in this church by nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ that convicts us of sin, that leads us in repentance, and that walks with us in righteousness and godliness and holiness. Help us to walk after you today, Lord Jesus, by faith and faith alone, knowing that you are the only one that can make us right. Right. 